very early in the pandemic, we started seeing and noticing how Latinos were being disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. They lost their jobs. We knew that there were pre-existing conditions. Latinos were in a different place when compared to other populations when it comes to the resources to respond to the pandemic. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingori. Thank you for joining us today and for your continued support. Please follow, subscribe to the podcast, and share your views with me and with your friends as well. My guest today is Dr. Carlos Rodriguez Diaz an accomplished global health researcher and community health scientist whose expertise in infectious diseases like HIV has had him work in Puerto Rico, US, and the Caribbean. I met um, Dr. Rodriguez Diaz a few years ago at the American Public Health Association annual meeting. We also have a list of common friends and colleagues, and his work has inspired me over the years. So I'm really excited and glad to have him on the show today. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Carlos Rodriguez Diaz. Yay, welcome, Carlos. Hi, thank you. Um, What a pleasure to be uh, here and um, doing your podcast. I'm also a fan. I appreciate all the work that you're doing. And um, thank you for um, bringing us the opportunity to share our experiences and our work in public health. Awesome. So happy to have you with us today. So I brought you on to just, you know, talk about your work, um, infectious diseases, mostly HIV, but you've recently been busy, um, you know, doing some research with COVID-19, having discussions with media houses, and just really doing some productive work. And I wanted to bring to the attention of the listeners your recently published article that examined Factors linked to structural racism that put Latino communities at risk for COVID-19. This is a first nationwide analysis of COVID-19 cases and deaths among Latinos. So could you tell us more about this study and what led to your interest in looking at those structural barriers? Sure. Um, So first, I would like to say that in a million years, I would have thought that I would conduct research related to COVID or coronaviruses. Um, As you mentioned, my area of work has been um, mostly on sexual health, sexual minorities, and HIV. Um, But I'm I'm a global citizen. I was Mm -hmm. looking at what the pandemic was doing in different countries um, as a scientist, but also at the personal level. Um, I currently live in Washington, DC. I have most of my family in Puerto Rico. And I also have family in Europe. And I realized how unproportionate was the impact of the pandemic. Uh, And that sounds very familiar for those of us with experience doing HIV research. Mm -hmm. Um, As a Latino in in the context of the United States, I was also witnessing uh, the differences in the response and the resources and materials that were available for our communities to respond to the community, to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also approached by a series of colleagues who um, 
did the first national level study on the impact of the pandemic, but in black and African-American communities. Most of those colleagues uh, comes from the HIV world and they started doing and applying their knowledge from the HIV world uh, or the HIV field, I should say, uh, into the pandemic uh, of COVID in the United States. And after the analysis that they conducted in inequities uh, among black uh, Americans, they also realized that Latinos were being disproportionately affected. So it was an issue of communities of color in the United States. So mm -hmm. they reached out to me and other Latino colleagues from the HIV field. And basically, this was a project of love because it was informed by our own personal experiences, um, by our commitment working with Latino communities in the United States and also supported by a network of scientists that for many years have been studying disparities. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's the inspiration. That, that was the, the reason why we decided to do the study. But from a scientific perspective, very early in the pandemic, we started seeing and noticing how Latinos were being disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. they, they lost their jobs. They, we knew that there were pre-existing conditions. Latinos were in a different place when compared to other populations when it comes to the resources that they might have to respond to the pandemic and the lack of policy or lack of a national plan to respond to the pandemic. So we mm -hmm. knew that these structural barriers were before COVID and it couldn't really, um, have a negative impact in the response or in the outcomes uh, of the pandemic. Wow, that's that's really interesting. So, you know, what are the lessons learned um, from doing this study and uh, moving forward, what would be your recommendations? Well, so in our study, we, I, we were able to identify uh, the factors that um, affected Latino communities um, mm -hmm. in different places in the United States. So I would say that the first lesson learned that is something that we already knew, but now we have the evidence uh, for mm -hmm. the COVID pandemic is that not all Latino communities are the same. So mm -hmm. we, we need different responses based on the location and the characteristics of the Latino communities. Latinos in the West Coast have a different historic experience than Latinos in the Northeast or in the central United States. So our study provide detailed uh, findings in terms of what can we do in different locations. Um, from my personal perspective as a scientist, what I'm doing now is doing more action research. Um, I am not an epidemiologist, and this study was pretty much aligned with describing the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, as an interventionist, I'm trying to get those lessons to inform policy actions and also strategies um, to increase access to testing, to increase access to prevention information for Latino communities, and also to integrate COVID to good practices that we have already identified for Latino community health. So those are the areas of work that I am now or kind of organizing and building collaborations to do more and kind of transfer my knowledge to the practice of public health. 
Indeed. Um, and those are like really um, critical lessons learned and recommendations, especially when you think at the policy level and how, you know, sometimes we tend to do a one size fits all, even for communities that, uh, you know, come from the same racial group. Um, and so it's important that you highlighted that those ones who are in the West Coast are different from the East Coast and from elsewhere, um, even though they're all Latinos. So that is a critical area that we um, tend to sometimes overlook. So one other item that I wanted to know about was when you think about the general population, um, it seems like people of color are more concerned or more worried about COVID-19. So why is there this heightened perception of risk in these communities? Uh, do you think they're just concerned about the disease or are there so many other things, underlying issues that are playing a role here? Well, so I think um, there is an overall sense of vulnerability mm -hmm. that is affecting communities of color in the United States. And I think that that goes beyond health. Mm -hmm. um, we need to look uh, to the pandemic in context. Um, we are dealing with a pandemic while we are also uh, experiencing a lot of racism, xenophobia, mm -hmm. um, policies that are putting people of color at risk for their, uh, for their well-being, even to stay here in the United States. So that, I believe, increases the overall sense of being vulnerable. So when on top of that, you are said that there is a pandemic that is affecting everybody, but at the same time, you understand that you are not like everybody. Mm -hmm. you, you have a heightened perception that you are at risk. Um, and I think that's, that's more from a socio-behavioral perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if we also look at the social structural factor that increased risk for infection and death, um, those are social determinants that we already knew were affecting communities of color and influencing negative outcomes. So, for mm -hmm. example, housing um, and job security or the quality of jobs. Um, we knew that before the pandemic, Latinos and other people of color uh, were overrepresented among frontline workers and in jobs that might not have all the requirements to provide safety. So at risk of occupational um, risks. And similarly housing, we already knew that um, we had an issue with uh, stable housing in communities of color or the, the quality of housing, not to mention the connection of all the above with um, socioeconomic status and the ability to have money or to have savings that could help you in the case that you cannot work or you cannot generate the income so you can pay your mortgage or your rental. Altogether, I think explain the intersections that might explain the uh, perception of risk in our communities. You're right. Um, and once again, it's important to look at those underlying factors so that we are not putting blame on individuals and expecting them to change. Well, as you have seen with COVID-19, the lack of 
testing sites, you know, the lack of um, people having access to uh, masks at, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, that fear that people had, um, you know, it really speaks volumes on, again, focusing on that intersectionality of those social, cultural, economic and political factors. Indeed. And, and even if we look at some elements that are very specific to certain um, ethnic cultural groups, mm-hmm. um, like language, Mm-hmm. Um, we can take a look at CDC's website. Mm-hmm. Um, often, we, we know that there's been many challenges in terms of the reliability uh, and how CDC is being um, providing information and guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but even if we assume that the information that the CDC is sharing is reliable and that we should use it, the information is not always available in the language that people speak or feel more comfortable using. Right. So, and um, and the, the website for CDC is not always available. And I would use Spanish as an example, speaking mm-hmm. of Latino communities. Um, so ju- just that is a barrier. So even, I, I agree with you, we should go beyond trying to blame on behaviors and what people are doing. We know mm-hmm. that behaviors is not the explanation. We should, of course, reinforce uh, preventive behaviors. But even in that case, we are not always having access to the resources that we need to promote healthy behaviors in our communities. So even if we look at what is basic, but that does not explain the disparities, we don't have the resources to do the best job that we could. Very true. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your training. You have completed a postdoctoral training in HIV and global health research, um, your PhD in public health and major in community health, as well as um, having a health education master's degree and having other additional training. So when you go back to your training, what motivated you to become this public health researcher, scientist, etc.? Like, where did you get that idea from? Uh, thank you for asking. Um, I think it's important to remind ourselves how we got where we are, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, a little bit of my background, I, I graduated from a high school in Puerto Rico. I am Puerto Rican mm-hmm. and I lived there or my, um, my life until I was um, 18. I graduated from high school at 17. And at that time, already in high school, I thought that science was the way to go. I had, since very early, um, had a passion for health. Mm-hmm. I am not sure why uh, the health in specific, but I, can, I remember the first model that I had in the health field. And it was a physician in my small hometown. It was a physician who was uh, a GP, and she was everywhere in my hometown. She had her office and we would go there when we needed medical care. But she was also in the fairs. She was also in the, uh, the grocery store. Um, now I know that that's, that's an experience that is common in small town, common to primary care and to having a provider who is embedded in the community. Um, so I wanted to be that like her. You know, I wanted mm-hmm. to help people when they were sick. So long story short, uh, when I went to college, I went for sciences. Um, I entered a program in chemistry. That was my undergrad mm-hmm. <laughs> because I wanted to be a physician. Mm-hmm. Um, I, had, I, I, I had the privilege of having very supportive parents, but that had different experiences with um, higher education. 
they were very passionate public servants. And to me, uh, I was just going to get a job to have the same job for many years. And, you know, medicine looked like that job. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody in, in my family had ever gone for graduate education. So I had no model on how, that, how to navigate that system. And medicine seems like to be very straightforward. Um, I went in my senior year um, mm -hmm. after doing internships mostly in biochemistry and physics. Um, I met a, uh, one of my uh, academic advisors and she said, listen, if you're going to med school, you should do an internship in the health field. Um, because you're done. Your MCAT numbers are great. You're going to get in med school, but you have no experience in health. You've been mm -hmm. doing basically chemistry. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, okay. Um, I saw a poster on a summer enrichment program on health management and policy at the University of Michigan. And to be honest, at that time, I had no idea what health policy had to do with management or that health and policy could be in the same sentence and it would make sense. Uh, but I said, well, listen, this is health and this is what I need. Moving forward, I went to University of Michigan and I think that's where everything started. I mm -hmm. ended up working in a Latino serving organization in Southeast Detroit. Uh, this is early 2000. Um, Latinos, Latino communities were disproportionately affected by um, many things, including HIV. And I had no idea of HIV. I was 20 years old. Um, starting to self-identify as a gay man. Mm -hmm. And to me, it was surprising that as a gay man, I had no idea of HIV until I moved to Detroit. And mm -hmm. I saw how the pandemic was disproportionately affecting people like myself. And I felt very fortunate. I felt privileged. And um, now I know that my mojo um, is that if I acknowledge my privilege, and I know that I have a privilege, I should use that privilege to disrupt the privilege because we, I should not have that privilege. Mm -hmm. It should be a shared uh, benefit. Mm -hmm. So I said, I remember calling my parents and I said, listen, I think that I discovered what I wanted to do. I don't need to be a physician in order to help my community. That's what public health does. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm doing public health. So that's how everything started. And I, I continued my training in, on HIV. Um, I, I did health policy um, classes in, in Michigan. I did my health education program in Puerto Rico. And I started working with inmates, uh, incarcerated populations in Puerto Rico. And that was my first job. After I finished my uh, master's in health education, I work uh, as a health educator in uh, working with inmates. At that time in Puerto Rico, we had nearly 25, 30,000 inmates and 50% of them had hepatitis C. Uh, a significant proportion had HIV and co-infection. So most of my work was on infectious diseases. And eventually I said, I want to continue my uh, graduate education, uh, but I don't want to only study HIV. I want to study health. Mm -hmm. And I want to approach HIV from a health perspective. So let's focus on sexual health. Mm -hmm. That's how um, I met many of our colleagues in common because I took my internships uh, at the university, uh, at Indiana University, mm -hmm. the Center for Sexual Health Promotion. Uh, I wanted to learn good sex research. And so I did. Mm -hmm. And um, eventually my postdoc uh, was inspired by my interest in not limiting my research to Puerto Rico 
or mm-hmm. to a specific population, but to understand how my research and my passion for public health was connected with the rest of the world. And that's how I ended up working in Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, just to wrap up here, sorry, this is a very long story. Oh, uh, no, it go had ahead. many terms and it's not perfect. <laughs> uh, I got rejected from universities in that process. Mm. Um, but um, I would say that it's, it, I have never seen myself as Carlos a researcher. Mm. I have always seen Carlos as a, a public health practitioner who mm. happens to be in academia. I think that I'm an academic uh, activist mm-hmm. and who knows how to do research. So I, I think of myself as somebody who balances research, activism, mm-hmm. and the practice of public health. Maybe uh, some of the outcomes are more obvious in research because of mm-hmm. how academia shapes um, scientists. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm constantly reminding myself and my team and the people that I work with that our work on research cannot be solely for the purpose of publishing articles and going to conferences and present our work. It has mm-hmm. to be meaningful for the community and it's mm-hmm. our responsibility to translate that research into practice. So that's my story and that's how I think I am uh, as a professional in public health. That's an amazing story, Carlos, and um, definitely relate to, to that desire to make a greater impact on our communities based on uh, the privileges that we have experienced or we have enjoyed over time. And this was a great segue to talk about the work that you've done in Puerto Rico, here in the U.S. and the Caribbean, and just looking at some of those similarities as well as, um, you know, differences. So in your community engagement work, what what have you seen as the similarities and differences in behaviors, disease prevention um, across those different those three areas that you've worked in, including Asia, too? Yes. So something that if you even I think now in the textbooks it's is included is that community engagement work from a scientific perspective is hard and it takes mm-hmm. time. And I would reiterate that. That's true. However, um, I think that the take time part of the equation is is necessary mm-hmm. uh, because we're doing work uh, with contexts that are being shaped, influenced, and uh, are in action. So we need to take our time to understand and to make sure that we make work that is relevant. Mm-hmm. The, the part that is um, often misunderstood or I don't think that accurately described is that it's difficult to conduct mm-hmm. community engagement, engage, engage work. Um, I think it's difficult in the sense that um, I think that for scientists uh, or for public health practitioners, we try to learn kind of equations on how to, how to do things or a prescription or a recipe on how to do things. And when you mm-hmm. work with a community, yeah, you might have a framework of how to do things, but you have to spend time with the community. You have to learn from the community. Uh, and then you start applying and renegotiating the process. And working with scientists is not easy. Uh, so if, it, if the work is hard, it's because it's, it's not easy to work with scientists and, and the same way we might perceive that it's not easy to work with the community. Mm-hmm. So the more you understand the community and the more the community understands you, the easier it is to 
do work together. So that would be my, my first take. And that is common no matter where you work. Mm-hmm. Um, I have worked uh, with Caribbean-wide uh, groups or very specific areas like Puerto Rico or Trinidad or Barbados. And, and the truth is that you have to gain entry to the community and, and understand the community. They are their, their leaders. Uh, you are not going to disrupt. Um, and sometimes your work is not necessary. And I think that that's also very important to learn in the process. We might think that a community needs something, but the community actually might say, that's, that's not what we need. And that's not our priority. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we don't listen to that, then um, we, we, will do, we will be deserving mm-hmm. the, the community. Um, and another, I mean, there are many things that I would like to comment on, but I, I think that another area that it is important to acknowledge based on, on my experience is that oppression is mm-hmm. oppression no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. And there, the, the groups that are made vulnerable might be different in different contexts, but those groups or populations that are placed in a position of vulnerability are often experiencing similar stuff. And we can translate that. And I think mm-hmm. that that, in fact, has been helping me. Just mm-hmm. to give an example, when I was doing my postdoc, I was fortunate enough to conduct similar research in Puerto Rico and in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So I included a question in the qualitative work that I was doing, both in both interviews that I were, a set of interviews that I was conducting. In both places, I was interviewing uh, gay men with HIV or men who had sex with men who uh, were living with HIV. And the question that I asked was, if you were to disclose that you are having sex with men or that you are HIV positive, uh, which one of those two you will disclose? And I was studying stigma. So this was a question in context, right? And in Vietnam, they would say, oh, I will totally say that I have HIV because HIV, I can blame somebody transmitting the virus to me, but I cannot blame anybody for having sex with men. And in Puerto Rico, uh, for the same question, a guy will answer, uh, oh, I would totally say that I'm gay. Gay is part of my identity. That's who I am. But um, it it was my fault that I contracted HIV. So again, the stigma is there, but it's experienced in different ways. And it's a similar group in terms of vulnerability. So I have learned how to approach vulnerability and how to translate what we learn from working with populations made socially vulnerable. So we can reduce the inequities. And mm-hmm. um, I think that that's, that's one of those privileges that I have of working in different places in the globe and learning together with members of the community. Very interesting. Um, and I think something that jumps out for me, uh, what would call those you know, social norms, cultural uh, dispositions, especially when you described those two uh, groups. So what role do you think culture plays um, within this context and in addressing stigmatized diseases like HIV? Well, uh, I mean, w- Understanding cultural values and norms is is essential in order to approach and to say that this is a finding, right? But I think w- what your question made me think is 
how often in public health we mm -hmm. measure culture as something that influences negative behavior. Mm -hmm. I think often we blame culture for what mm -hmm. some people experience. And in some instances, in fact, cultural values or some components of culture might influence negative outcomes. But uh, it's not to blame the cultural experiences or cultural groups, right? Right. But at the same time, culture or cultural values change over time. Mm -hmm. And one of the most significant challenges, mostly because it takes time that we have in public health, mm -hmm. is to change cultural norms. But we should not shy away from the responsibility that we have on calling out um, cultural experiences that might increase negative health outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, however, how we do that has to be in a very culturally sensitive way, mm -hmm. because it's very easy for me to say that as an outsider in Vietnam, for example, um, while to me a more sustainable and informed way would be to work with communities and inform my research report and see what the community think uh, can be done. Uh, mm -hmm. If my assumption that some cultural values need to be changed resonates with the community. Um, and how can we engage in good conversations about that? Mm -hmm. uh, it's so, I mean, that's, that's my take on cultural values. Um, but, but certainly, they are, they are, that's an area that I think we need to do a better job in disentangling the, the role of culture and cultural values in health outcomes, particularly when we work with communities that we do not self-identify with and that right. we have a limited understanding based on our level of exposure. Indeed, I totally um, agree with that. And I think sometimes um, as researchers, uh, people are afraid of maybe measuring culture. So it's very ambiguous as a variable, if you will. Um, but I had a guest on a while back, uh, Dr. Collins Arambua, and he talked about when we look at culture, you know, looking at it, starting from a positive lens, um, and appreciating what is positive and good about that culture before we completely go on the negative. Because, I mean, there's, in this life, there's nothing that's absolute. You know, there are always pros and cons um, to everything, including in culture. But if we're going to relate, if we're going to be able to make an impact on our communities, uh, we have to appreciate um, their culture. And then, like you said, have a discussion with them, a positive discussion, and see what elements of that are influencing their lives for the better or not um, making a good impact on their lives, right? I really appreciate that you bring this to, to the conversation. Uh, another important component on the role of culture and you know how connected it is with social justice and other issues that we have been um, referencing here is that it, we should be fair and remind that that's not a conversation limited for us scientists of mm -hmm. color. Um, I think academia has a responsibility of making sure that this um, understanding of culture and diversity um, uh, is problematic and should not be left to members of communities of color to lead 
or mm -hmm. to be the, the ones that are bring the issue to attention. The same happens to students and to practitioners. Uh, I mean, as a public health professional, if you believe in the core values of public health, this is a responsibility of everyone. And mm -hmm. it's fantastic. And I think we do better when we have different experiences, including different cultural backgrounds that are brought to uh, planning and executing public health work and research. I could not have said it better. That is true. So um, this is really everybody's work. And um, I appreciate you advocating for that. And, you know, earlier on, you said we we need to learn to be, you know, not just scientists and pushing uh, publications, but really um, centralizing the, you know, humanness of the people that you are working with and what is important to them and advocating for their needs as well. So you've done some work, you said earlier, with comorbidities and, um, you know, also working with the incarcerated um, population in Puerto Rico. And this is a really at-risk group, knowing that, they, first of all, they can't use condoms in jail. Um, and the reliance is on testing and uh, the antiretroviral um, treatment. So could you talk about those comorbidities, but also add on those challenges of HIV prevention in the incarcerated uh, population? Yes, thank you. Uh, that's, that's an area that is, is a passion of mine. And I have to say my very first scientific publication was um, on a study with, with incarcerated populations. But the, the, the story behind my work in prison um, was very much informed by my personal experience. Um, mm -hmm. My father worked for the, departments of, the, the Department of Correction in Puerto Rico for 30 years. Um, and he worked as a correctional officer all the way to be the subsecretary or at, at the level of the secretary of the agency. Wow. Um, so the language of correctional services was common in my household. Um, and on another podcast, we can talk about that, because how personal experiences influence our work in public health, right? Yes. But, um, uh, I, I had a, a pretty much a, a misunderstanding of the population. Even though my father worked for the correctional department, department of correction, now that I know more, I, I could see how his work was uh, approached from a more um, human rights perspective, more than criminalizing. Uh, and he was, if, if we will, a good cop. And, but I, my understanding was of the correctional population was very limited. And when I started working with inmates, um, I, I was drawn by the HIV epidemic, but then I learned so much of the health inequities and um, how really the correctional facilities are just housing people that have health issues. Uh, in the context of Puerto Rico, for example, uh, nearly 75% of the people in prison have history of drug use and are in prison because of drug-related crimes. So really what we have uh, are, are a, is a correctional system to mm -hmm. provide mental health and substance abuse services. Um, so that being said, um, now more than ever, I am standing against the correctional complex mm -hmm. um, and against uh, having prisons at all. But in the meantime, uh, while we shift the system, 
um, we are we have to provide services to those who are in, in incarcerated, and um, we have uh, more correct um, chronic conditions um, mm -hmm. presented among inmates in part because the conditions of living are conductive to the development of you know diabetes, obesity, uh, the sedentarism that is experienced in in, in correctional facilities also. Uh, have an impact on on the well-being of inmates and uh, people in prison. So we have to provide services for the individual. So what I'm doing more, more recently is actually working with community-based organizations who are interested in providing re-entry services to incarcerated individuals. So we have kind of a one-stop. And mm -hmm. the focus is health, but actually the services that we are providing are mostly social services because the challenges that inmates have are more related to transportation, food, housing, employment. Inmates, when they're released from prison, they're not thinking about going to their physician for continuity of care. What they're thinking mm -hmm. is looking for a job, uh, where I'm going to leave. So we are, we are now working with organizations that can work with the inmate and providing those services and in the process we also help the the participant identifying healthcare providers we help them to enroll in the equivalent of medicare or medicaid according mm -hmm. to what may apply to them and in that way we reduce the negative impact of returning to the community and not continuing health care mm -hmm. but what we have proved not only us in puerto rico but overall we know that when we provide continuity of services to people who have been released from prison um, and we achieve engagement in, in, in healthcare, we also reduce radicivism. So mm -hmm. we actually have a, an impact not only in health outcomes, but also in the overall well-being of, of these participants, these individuals. Indeed. Wow. That's, that's incredible work that you're doing there. And it's important that we bring those, this population into the conversation of public health more often. Um, we don't talk about them enough. And I, I think it's important, especially even just here in the U.S., you know, um, in some of these places where we have a really high population of incarcerated individuals. And we know most of them are uh, people from the communities of color. And so that adds on to all these challenges that we're experiencing with um, trying to reduce um, HIV, but also access, increasing access to healthcare services. So I'll try and move on a little bit um, faster. I, I'll, I only have a couple of um, minutes for two questions. And um, going back to COVID-19, this has been a question that has been on a lot of people's minds. Uh, you're a sexual health expert. Can people have sexual activity during this COVID-19 outbreak? What risk of transmission do they need to know? Well, so um, we are still learning. That's the, that's the answer uh, about the sexual transmission of COVID. Um, yes, people can be sexually active. They just have to be careful. Um, mm -hmm. We cannot say that COVID is sexually transmitted, although mm -hmm. it has been found uh, as, as a risk for, um, particularly for oral sex. But mm -hmm. most importantly, we know that it be, can be contracted through saliva. And it's very likely that in sexual interactions, people like to kiss each other. So that mm -hmm. would be a risk. However, if you are uh, at home with your um, sexual partner and you are taking the proper measures for prevention and you know that you know that you're okay, well, with your partner you can do whatever you want. And if you're opening your um, sexual network, just be very careful, engage in conversations about um, how the person is being exposed. But this is a conversation that should be part of um, your 
sexual negotiation and your and your mm-hmm. sexuality overall. Mm-hmm. So people, in essence, should just continue taking on the precautions they we you know we give them with regard to uh, sexually transmitted infections prevention. Correct. Okay, so to finalize, you have been busy, huh? so busy this last couple of months, and I wanted to know. How are you able to balance, you know, your health, your concerns for COVID, uh, the pressure to be productive, but at the back of your mind, you're like, you know, how much can I protect myself from COVID? How much can I protect my family members? How are you able to balance that? Well, so thank you for that question. And I've been thinking about that myself. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting because I think... I, as you mentioned, I think I'm perceived to be as a, a productive person uh, in the context <laughs> of COVID. I, I don't feel like that, mm-hmm. um, but I'm starting to understand that our the bar for what we what what is our goal is different mm-hmm. these days. Um, what I've done is to take to try to balance um, the TV when it's overwhelming. Um, stop reading about COVID. Even though I am doing research, sometimes we need a mental break. We mm-hmm. need to, to separate time for self-care. Um, during the last six months, I, I've, we've been practicing social distancing since March. And right now we are, although where we are, um, we are on a phase that we can go to restaurants and indoor spaces. We are not doing it. Um, mm-hmm. In that way, I think I feel safer and um, I think has improved my relationship with my husband. Mm-hmm. We are in good communication. We have worked together to make our space work. Um, I also acknowledge that I have a privilege. I have a mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, my job seems to be useful for the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So um, I am very aware of that. And I am being sponsoring uh, local businesses that... I like that I was going to before the pandemic, and that's my way to also bring something to the community. Um, and I've been talking more to people. That's the other thing. Um, mm-hmm. um, using technology, having FaceTime, uh, making sure that I am catching up with friends um, the best way I can. And I, I guess that that's been my balance. Although I might not, it might not feel like a balance. <laughs> and to be gentle, you know, sometimes we have to be gentle to ourselves. We are late. The computer didn't work. Um, the phone ran out of battery. Well, those things happen. And that's our mm-hmm. reality. And we just have to acknowledge that that's how things are going. And I'm right there with you. I agree on that. Um, you know, I've learned a lot of patience during this time and uh, giving myself time to, to not be perfect. Um, during these moments, because academia can put you in that face of feeling like you're not doing enough. Um, and, and so I, I, I definitely um, agree with you on some of those elements of taking care of yourself. You know, mental health is so critical during this time, um, especially for professionals, but also recognizing the privilege that we have and um, taking time to, to be thankful for that. So I just want to say thank you so much for speaking with me today. You have given us a lot of food for thought, but also taking us through the journey of your life and what inspired you and, you know, some of those memorable moments that you've had throughout your journey. And to say, you know, uh, mucho gracias, right? 
and to say that um, you know I really enjoyed my time in Puerto Rico for fun when I went there last year um, on vacation we beach hopped to about five with a, you know to five beaches and I, I want to go back there uh, we went San Juan but we went to um, the adjacent cities and I re really had a wonderful time we visited some of um, your popular artists and so it was it was really cathartic and um, you know I, I, I love Puerto Rico and and it's nice to talk to someone from there and someone that I've known for a long time so thank you for taking the time to to be here today no thank you for the opportunity gracias um, it is always a, a pleasure to talk with colleagues who share the passion um, thank you for having this space and and I hope that we can continue the conversation um, I it's been a pleasure Indeed, indeed. So I'll have you back. We talk about those personal experiences. That will be a whole podcast uh, to share how those personal experiences influence our lives. And uh, I want to thank the listeners. And I do hope you'll join us again next time. So thank you. Thank you.